Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't work, what led to better games, as well as what, well, what didn't. And we talk about it all. In this episode, we are going to discuss the third edition, or 3.5 edition, of D&D, and with a specific look at Unearthed Arcana, which is a book that was released in uh, what year? Uh, February 2004. Okay, so pretty late in the cycle, right? I mean, eh, mid-cycle, maybe. So, so 3.5 came out in 2003, yeah? So... It's really about a year into three point five. I see. I just I just mush three and three point five together, so I always think the year two thousand. So yeah, but you you are correct. So and this this sultry voice that you are hearing, other than my own, is my co-host Brandis Stoddard. How are you tonight, sir? I'm I'm doing well. Um, glad to be here. Uh, we haven't gotten to record in sort of a hot minute, so it's very nice yeah. to be talking to you again. Yeah, you as well. The the lifespans of uh, uh, 3.0 and 3.5 always stick in my head really easily because um, 3.0 ended just as I was getting out of college. And, mm. and so we sort of played out my college campaign, it ended, and then the very next thing I ran was 3.5. Right? Okay. And so all I have to do is remember yeah. the year I graduated from college, which is fairly okay. easy. <laughs> uh, sure. You know, so um, the the whole concept of an Unearthed Arcana episode is one that um, I pitched to you some time back, um, not really knowing that it was ever going to be able to happen because I couldn't (laughs) find my copy. And Mm -hmm. then uh, my uh, very good friend and uh, show listener, Jeffrey Fortier, uh, tracked down a copy and picked it up for me. Uh, oh, nice. So uh, I have him to thank for uh, the fact this episode is able to happen, and all of you have him to blame for what's about to happen. <laughs> uh, well, I, just for the audience's uh, notion, I never owned this book uh, originally, but um, because Brandis suggested that we talk about this and suggested it had a lot of good ideas. Now, don't get me wrong. I had seen the book, and I had heard of some of the specific kind of wild stuff that was in here. Uh, but I never actually owned my own copy, so I never had the pleasure of it sitting on my shelf. So it, what I did in order to prep for this episode was I went over to our friendly DMs Guild and I downloaded the PDF. So that is available for everyone. If you, if you don't have it or you can't find your copy, that's one way to get it. Now, in all fairness, I only said that it had a lot of ideas. Yes, yes. The, yes. No, the you quality you is a one, separate yes, that's argument. True. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Some of them I really like, and I really want to figure out a way to sort of re-explore and bring into fifth in some uh, alternate way. And some mm-hmm. of them I don't feel the same way about. Right, right. Well, I think it's a it's a fair. Uh, I think the tone of the book is set right at the very beginning. The very first line of the introduction is warning in in bold warning. <laughs> Get ready to drink from the fire hose. There you go. And I think that's because um, this book is just cram-packed full of ideas. Yep. Literally. And they're not – they don't even – you know, it's not a book that you're going to pick up and use as – 
I'm going to implement, I mean, you, you could, I suppose, but you're not necessarily going to pick this up and say, I'm going to implement every single thing in here. But that's literally impossible. They're, they're self-contradictory in a lot of cases. Well, but, but I'm just saying, like you, 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 it's not even something that would seem like a good idea when you look at the table of contents, right? Right, yeah. You don't, you don't look at it and say, oh, this is a cohesive book about the planes, or this is a cohesive book about, um, you know, about fighters or, or the martial classes. This is a, a wide-ranging treatise on how you could change your game in various different ways. Yep, um, and and it, different ways to like, approach races, you know, by, by biome. It's the very first mm-hmm. thing uh, that, that shows up here, and that's not for every campaign. Um, right. Th- it's an open question with campaign. It's for in some cases. Um, <laughs> yes, that's true. And so like, th- just all kinds of stuff goes on here. Um, and so that, that's a big part of why I'm so excited about this. Um, it's, it's a great example of getting to watch people think out loud. Um, and in much the same way as the Donuts Arcana uh, documents that Watsi drops nowadays, uh, there is a lot of just observing a thought process in motion that mm-hmm. appeals to me very deeply. Um, in addition to, hey, here's a bunch of designs that, frankly, we don't think are ready for prime time, but you might do something with. Um, there's a ton of sidebars in this book. Um, I mean, in the table of contents, uh, there are more sidebars than sections. And right. Because they, they know you're going to want to search the book by sidebars. That's That's mm-hmm. a reasonable way to use this book and that's unusual but, but pretty cool yeah so let me let me step back for a second and because i am not the third edition aficionado i am very much knowledgeable in just about every other edition but third is third is my weak point in terms of knowledge sure um so let me ask you a, a, a question about the design process in third edition and the playtest process in third edition you know, was a book like this actually playtested or was it more like where what you're saying about the UA that's released now for fifth edition, where they really are just saying, look, this is playtest stuff. This is, this is so, sort of what we're thinking, play with it, break it, fix it, to be, be ready to tell us what you think about it. And, and we're going to eventually maybe mold some of this into something usable in a published book, but, but probably not for the vast majority of it, but just so that it's out there, here it is. That's not what this book is, right? Was this well, book playtested? Well, so uh, a couple of things about that. One in the in the two thousand in the knots, um, mm-hmm. public design did not work the same way. Um, Watsi's public facing personas worked worked at all of this differently, mm-hmm. um, and so. I don't know. Even as a fan who read everything, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Another thing, playtesters are credited in, in the credits, so sure. I assume they playtested sure. something. Yeah. I mean, but I, um, I, it seems to me like all these playtesters are Watsi employees. Sure. Yeah. It, it doesn't mean, mean it was ever publicly playtested, but right. th- that they hired people to playtest. Sure. Like, well, 
not hired people specifically to play test, but had people on pay- payroll who were play testing. Sure. Right. And you know, it probably wouldn't be too difficult to, um, go on to Twitter and, mm-hmm. uh, get two seconds of James Wyatt's time to tell you about the process, frankly. Sure. sure. Uh, it became an interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to, in my mind, right. Cause that, that, that will change the, a little bit. It would change how I receive this information, right. Is, yeah. you know, it's sort, it's sort of like, it's pretty well known that in fourth edition, there was a humongous amount of errata, and part of the reason was because they had such a stringent release cycle, or stringent's the wrong word. They had such a uh, punishing release cycle. Yeah, for sure. That they didn't have time, even if they used only in-house playtesters. For sure. So um, if there was a, 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 you know, a list of errata as long as your arm. Um, and that's kind of a sticking point. So I was just wondering, like in in this sort of in 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 the year after three point five, right? Obviously there was enough sentiment within the company that they thought there needed to be a 3.5 edition. Okay. Clearly. Yeah. So, you know what I, I just, I'm just trying to wrap my head around like the context of this book coming into existence is really what it is. Well, um, so with full uh, knowledge that it's not like you're, you were an employee there or something. So you don't uh, actually, you know, right. Right. Like, for <laughs> sure. Um, so my impression is very much that this is, um, like in addition to just being a toolbox of weird ideas, um, mm. it's also, hey, so we swept up the cutting room floor, and uh, <laughs> this was the coolest stuff from uh, from that. Like, you know, we saw what cream rose to the top from the cutting room floor milk, and here you go. And okay. you know, let's see if I can make that uh, metaphor a little more tortured and/or gross. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but but I don't know their process, and I haven't ever tracked anyone down to ask about that. But um, I should totally do that just to find out what they say. Yeah, um, just to see what you get. Yeah. So. So um, let, so let's talk about the book now. I know you were starting that already, but I wanted to. I needed to reset my context. No, so. no, no. That's that's fine. Um. So so right. Um. There are. Uh, basically six chapters of different kinds of ideas in here. And so we may not get through all of them tonight, um, even going at a fair clip, just mm-hmm. thinking of how we handled, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Everything else Christmas. we have ever done. <laughs> well, sure. Usually we get through a whole edition of something, but we're also not doing a single book. Right. That's true. Um so, uh, so just for the audience's sake, we are taking a deep dive into this. This isn't going to be a ten-minute review of the best things we thought were in this book. This is a deep dive. So, yeah. just so you know, it's probably going to be two episodes, uh, maybe, maybe three. Bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see how it works out for him. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> just being real about it. All right, so. So yeah, um, like I know what my favorite thing in the book is because uh, it's the thing that stuck with me and has always brought my mind back to this book. So okay. so there's that. Um, well, I also know some of the things that, that is. Okay, so that's jumping w- way on ahead, but um, the things right. the thing I've always loved in this is um, the generic classes section, which. 
is a heck of a name for something to be my favorite, but uh, you know, gonna live my truth, I guess. Um, <laughs> so we're talking about about seventy six pages into the book, then. Yep. Um, and so the, the concept of this is that it's D and D, but with only three classes. If you stripped it all down to just three classes, here you go. And okay. I mean, that's a that's a default state, sort of, for NPC classes, uh, because in three zero and three five, there are class progressions for NPCs mm-hmm. that are less powerful and stripped down from PC classes, right? You have your warrior, your expert, and your adept. Well, what if you bulk those up a tiny bit, a tiny, tiny bit, and Mm -hmm. made those the chassis of the whole class system and everything else springs forth from that? That's intensely appealing to me. Uh, So you have um, the... Um, the expert, the spellcaster, and the warrior, right? Uh, spellcaster instead of adept, but you know what can you do? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The warrior is about indistinguishable from the fighter. You know, pro tip: it's a lot of right. feats. Mm-hmm. Um, the the real distinguishing thing is that you might put your good save in something other than fortitude, and we're done. That that's it. That's the difference. <laughs> Um, yeah, your good your good save at first level is plus two, at twentieth right. level it's plus twelve, right? And your so, your, so, your BAB is fifteen ten five because you get three attacks. Wait, is that right? No, no, we're talking attacks. about the, so if we're talking about the warrior. Then it's yeah. uh, twenty fifteen ten five. Sorry, I was looking at the expert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, so anyway, that, that, so that, but that is that is the number of attacks, right? So the expert is fifteen, ten, five. So that's yep. that's three attacks. So even the expert yep. gets three attacks. Okay. Well, well and, and that's standard for the, for, the yeah, three for, quarters right. PAB yeah, progression. Yeah. Sure. So the expert is a riff on the rogue, but with feats instead of features. Right. Um, and there aren't necessarily. Uh, Features to sell you the the things you're not gaining from Rogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, ultimately this is underdeveloped, but there are uh, additional bonus feats to to sell you class features you're missing from, you know, classes right. other than fighter. Um, so. You can buy evasion, um, and it's just got a a prereq, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can buy familiar, favorite enemy, greater sneak attack, improved evasion, improved sneak attack. I'm reading these in alphabetical order, not progression order. People, sorry. Right, right. Um, <laughs> smite evil, sneak attack, turn undead, trap sense, and can you dodge? Uh, wild empathy. So, the the idea is that you would buy these in place of other feats, and you would have a close enough version of the, the you know, class concept just turned into these three classes and nothing more. That's that's where we are here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's interesting the way that it works. Um, and the spellcaster can choose from all the spell lists. Yep. Um, which is interesting. Um 
I, I, it, 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 at first glance, it sounds like they're trying to make it simplistic, right? But, right. Um, so, so the but, spellcaster chooses to either be an arcane spellcaster or a divine spellcaster. Uh, no impact on the spells she may learn, but affects what kinds of scrolls she can use and which ability score controls her spellcasting. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but uh, I don't know. There's uh, So here's what's what's this strikes me. This strikes me quite a bit like Numenera with the, the original three uh, types yeah. of, of characters, right? Yep. yep. So uh, I can kind of see – I can see this DNA – in that kind of design a, 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 a tiny bit, right? Like it's not right. by any means, it's not, you know, just transferred over directly, but right. um, it's definitely an interesting way to, uh, to try to set up all your classes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, an idea that my brain really gravitates toward, you know, um, in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, I don't know off the top of my head how to implement it in in fifth. That's that's actual work to do instead of doing something else. But yeah, um, it really appeals to me as a, a model of a game where uh, instead of picking all these feats, you establish ways to learn things you know through work and questing in play. Um, so that, and this is a, a major, major thing that, um, that my wife Rabbit talks about as a you know, design goal she wants to see a game pursue mm-hmm. is, uh, all earning of new abilities is very explicitly in character and not sort of, um, meta mechanical. Right. Right. Yeah, you don't build your character with uh, points at the beginning. I mean, you you might build a, a chassis that way, but right. you don't build level up abilities from the beginning. You build that based on what did you do during the game. Right. Yeah, I love that idea. There are I some mean, some sort of smaller press games that that have a similar kind of. Um, right. But they don't you there. But the, at the same time, they're not uh, class based games, so it's not a like the thing with D and D is because it's so class based, your level up just traditionally gives you a ton of class based things, uh, new abilities, bonuses, whatever. Uh, and so if you if you if you try to design that, if you try to design into that a way to change what's available or change the strength of the increase. In, in the use of that ability based on what was done in game. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that idea, but it sounds like a paperwork nightmare for the DM. Uh, well, well, I mean, the, <laughs> the, the, the really, like, the, the gimme example here to me mm-hmm. is wouldn't it be cool if uh, Paladin Hood were earned on camera in the course of play through exercise of virtue? Sure. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, through exercise of maintaining the oath and right. you know upholding the values of the same thing with clerics right like i i yep. you know cleric is my favorite class in pretty much every edition of D&D not because i'm a particularly religious person but because i find the concept of 
of the interaction with a divine power to affect the mortal world through the character fascinating yeah and quite powerful but i feel like that should be a part of progression and it's not um so. yeah yeah i agree with that um and you know uh if you look over at shadow of the demon lord and their mm-hmm. progression from uh you have your four uh, i think they call them base classes or core classes to a a wider number of classes at at mid tier to mm-hmm. a huge number of classes each of which have you know two parent classes right. um, at a top tier like mm-hmm. there's there's a similar expression of concept going on right uh, and you're you're bringing to mind warhammer fantasy because for sure. you have the, for sure. the careers that you go into when you level up you you can start picking pieces of the different career professions yep. or whatever depending on the, the for sure but um yeah and and those are all things that they're very appealing for you know uh who your character is tells the story of who they were right like right the, each piece of the story points to each other piece of the story that's pretty cool um mm-hmm. Anyway, um, well, was it you I was talking to on Twitter the other day about the backgrounds in D and D Fifth Edition have a big hole in the middle, right? Yeah, like the background either tells you what you did before you became an adventurer, or it tells you what you're currently doing. Right. Yeah, I, I would I would frame that as who you were or who, what you are when you aren't specifically uh, coming together in groups to stab with friends. Right, right. and. But the thing that's left out is the piece in the middle of, well, how did you get to the point where you're being an adventurer? Uh, right, though, I mean, hanging a whole background on a single inciting incident works for the folk hero, but it's not for, sure. not for every background. Right, right. But that's, you know, I mean, that's that's what I'm saying, too. And it also doesn't ever, like... Uh, Anyway, anyway, that's a fifth edition thing. Let's go back to the, let's go, right. let's go back to the. We, this is why our this is why it's three episodes now. <laughs> Look, dude. <laughs> so so what what about this in, it intrigues you so much that it stuck with you all these years? Well, um, among other things, uh, this is the really clear sort of point back to uh, the original D and D model, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, setting aside uh, elves, dwarves, and halflings as racist class, um, mm-hmm. this is uh, you know fighting man, magic user, thief. Right. Uh, except that they they joined uh, cleric and magic user into spellcaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would probably put forth some work to put everyone on a d8 and hit die somehow. Because ultimately it would be fine, <laughs> yeah. right? And and I find the the whole deal of um, like oh this spellcaster isn't a good cleric because they have a d4 hit die. Well, that's especially tedious to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I try to I try to massage for that in a way that. Uh, this text doesn't, but you know, 
that, that's me second guessing the designers, you know, something I do for fun all the time. Um, <laughs> and, you know, th- this also factors into um, some of the, uh, the other content that uh, shows up in this book. For example, uh, they have um, Bard and uh, Ranger and Paladin somewhere, I think. Yeah, and Paladin um, as prestige classes. Right? Mm. They're presented as potential prestige classes. And that's pretty cool since, as every school child knows, Bard was the original prestige class in first edition. Right. Um, since all and sundry have read my history of the Bard series on tribality, comma space, <laughs> right? Uh, we all know that the in first edition, the Bard required uh, between five and seven levels of fighter, followed by between five and seven levels of thief, followed by between five and seven levels of druid. I might have thief and druid in the wrong order, but I don't review my own work, you know, <laughs> five years later. So what can you do? Um, point being, uh, you have to go through this enormously elaborate process to be allowed to start being a bard in, in yeah. first ed. And so it carries prestige as a demonstration demonstration of effort. Um, right, right. And there's a whole side story about how weird all of that is, but you know, let's go back to the book that we're actually talking about. Um, <laughs> I, I just think that uh, those classes, because they are intrinsically multi-class concepts, are interesting in a, a generic class uh, world, in a world where yeah, you, there are only fighters, experts, and spellcasters. And mm-hmm. you can multi-class you know, where you're expert and spellcaster to to reach a concept. But then in the, the whole pattern of uh, this prestige class is intrinsically multi-class, uh, you then sort of get paid back for the unpleasantness you went through in multi-classing to get there. Mm-hmm. So if it took, let's say... Uh, X many levels of fighter and X many levels of uh, wizard to do that as fast as possible. Well, now the first couple levels of the prestige class or the whole run of the prestige class are a little bit goosed up in power. Um, like that's absolutely a thing in in three five. Uh, the the Mystic Theurge being the most famous of examples, mm-hmm. where you take uh, three levels of your arcane side class and three levels of your divine side class to qualify for the prestige class. From that point forward, every level of the prestige class advances your spellcasting in both sides by one. That's phenomenal in third. I don't know what else to tell you. It's completely unbelievably good. (laughs) Um, And so you're you don't have it as high a level spell. Fine. You know what? Let's cut that. It's fine. <laughs> Is it too good? Uh, the Mystic Theurge? Yeah. Uh, that is a really complicated question. That is a super complicated question. In 
the general opinion, I think if you polled everyone who had anything to do with the class or looked at it real hard, they would say, oh, hell yes, it is extremely overpowered. Um, I think that there's a a pretty involved argument to be made that the way it stops you from having the highest tier of spells that you could have at any time, because you're functionally uh, three spellcaster levels lower in both classes, right? Uh, right? So you don't have the highest level stuff. It's always going to be delayed for you. Mm-hmm. That's a huge balancing factor, especially uh, you're casting our minds back to how uh, third ed worked when you have multiple slots of your highest level spell. Like if it were fifth, where uh, once you have sixth level spells, it takes a really, really long time before you get your second sixth level spell in a day. Same mm-hmm. for seventh, and then you never get another eighth level spell per day or another ninth level right. spell per day. Right. That's not a thing. Yeah. Well, you're one and done. That's it. You're, you're one and done. And that lets them make those really, really special in, in, mm-hmm. in principle. Sorry, right. weird, but whatever. I digress. Um, <laughs> so it isn't quite as big of a deal to not have one uber trick per day. Well, if it's a two or three times per day thing, especially because you've got a really high ability score to give you another of that thing per day, it matters. It's a really big deal. Maybe. <laughs> you know, it, it sort of depends on how you were planning to do stuff anyway. Um, so that's a really complicated question. And um, I'm not really the best person to ask. Your, your, your answer is yes, yes, it's way too overpowered until it isn't. Right. Until you hit that level where it sort of doesn't progress anymore. So I never had any Mystic Theurges in games that I played. And the one time I saw a Mystic Theurge in action was in a, a run of uh, Rise of the Rune Lords. Mm-hmm. And that Mystic Theurge was extremely not okay. But in part that's because the player had figured out how to ruthlessly game the, um, the ready to action economy in... Um, in 3-5 so that uh, when you're facing a caster you're always readying actions to cast a spell in response to them casting a spell so not only do you cast your spell you also counter their spell by doing damage to them during their casting Mm -hmm. especially if you're a large party fighting a single enemy Right. Well, that goes one way. Because you have the action economy advantage, you, you're you just locking the enemy down by you know, just delaying your action to happen in your off turn. Whoa. Right. So anyway, um, <laughs> that was, that was a, a really interesting encounter to get to watch. And... Um, a real education for me in things that can go wrong with ready actions and reactions and that whole off-turn timing thing. And also, like, 
what constitutes interrupting a spell. Um, right. I think there are a lot of really subtle rules in fifth that are about um, cutting out that design space of um, not only do I counter, I'm also the one who gets the spell through. Right. There's a new problem, of course, which is counterspell. But I digress. <laughs> yeah, you know, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> Would anyone like to hear about Ernest Arcana 3.5? I hope so, because <laughs> it's what we're here to talk about. I think maybe maybe next episode. <laughs> sure, sure. Why not? Um, so so right. Uh, I do want to like start with some actual coverage of chapter one. Um, so it's it's races by biome, um, environmental racial variants for um, uh, dwarves, elves, gnomes, goblins. Uh, Half elves, half orcs, halflings, humans, kobolds, and orcs. Uh, why those? Who knows, dude? That's a great question. <laughs> because uh, somebody had already had an idea in mind for I mean, how to make them. right. Um, and so we go through um, aquatic, uh, arctic, uh, desert, jungle. Yeah, and that's it. Um, and since there was a recent uh, whole thing about orcs and presentation of orcs in D&D, well, as late as 2004, it was still very firmly the bad old days. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> uh, but the whole point of that conversation was, man, Volo's Guide to Monsters sure was the bad old days still. Great. Yeah. Um, so all of these are um, how you would adjust the racial features of these races to be customized to that uh, biome. And I mean, aquatic is uh, super stripped down um, since there's a, a general bullet point list of uh, aquatic racial traits that everyone's going to have. Um, and uh, then how those vary for each individual race. For example, aquatic mm-hmm. elves don't have gills. They're the one that don't have gills. Um, right. Which I can only assume is a canon nod to the many, many, many races of aquatic elves that have been released over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking and, at the, uh, and as is like sort aqua- of customary, aquatic half elf um, has gills, mm-hmm. gets an improved swim Which speed. I find I find interesting. Yeah, <laughs> um, loses their racial bonus and in gather information checks, and gains a racial bonus and survival checks, um, which is part of. The the story that uh, the three five is trying to sell on how half elves are not just uh, sort of a, a mix and match of uh, elf features and human features. Mm-hmm. I love the picture there. On I know that's bad podcasting to talk about the picture, but the, <laughs> the picture by uh, by Crabapple D Crabapple. I don't know who that is. 
uh, on page eight of what I think is supposed to be a piranha. Uh, something. Maybe it's a piranha. I'm not really sure. It yeah, looks to me like it, you know, might be some horror of the deeps. I don't, I don't who knows? It could be. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. What what do you think about these aquatic traits? Like when you look at this list of of you know traits that these you know all of these aquatic races have, anything surprising, anything interesting, anything jump out as you know? Oh yeah, that's you know something something that makes you think twice about about it. Um, I mean, right out the gate, not exactly. Um, there's there's a lot of yeah, of course. That's a that's a mm-hmm. an obvious thing. Or okay, you're you're making some canon assumptions here that are a little strange, but sure. Mm-hmm. Like aquatic gnomes don't have irrational bonus and attack rules against kobolds, uh, but retain their bonus against goblinoids. Well, right. you have both aquatic <laughs> goblins and aquatic kobolds, so. Um, and you know they only have uh, what two paragraphs of flavor text to describe what they're trying to do with aquatic gnomes. So right. we'll never know. Right. It was a. It feels like more of a balancing uh, exercise than an actual. Let's really make the aquatic gnome flavorful and different. It's it's more like eh, yeah okay here it is. Uh, and oh well, we got to take away something because otherwise it doesn't really match the the ability of the other classes we're making or or races. Yeah, and yeah, that, it, it probably is a sense of what well, we're giving them this stuff. We need to edge mm-hmm. off a few other things. Sure. Um, so I don't know. Um, it doesn't feel super special or different to me. Um, I mean, the aquatic human um, only gains, right? They also gain a swim speed of 30 feet uh, in addition to um, the, the aquatic subtype and um, presumably some of yeah, it, it can breathe underwater. Um, mm-hmm. They also gain low-light vision. That's, that, that's their thing. They have low-light vision in addition to being a human. Well, <laughs> sure, I guess. Yeah. Like it doesn't. I don't know. It's kind of so the difference between an aquatic human and um, a triton is what? Just maybe I maybe. But the point is, this isn't developed for a setting specifically. This is scattershot ideas, and that level of of development right. just isn't done. Like they're not trying to say that it's sure. fully baked. It's instead ready for you to take and apply seasoning. Right. So uh, that, that's kind of a good point, right? That if you're going to be using these, you're going to do it in maybe a homebrew setting or something anyway. And this is meant to be something uh, to give you a baseline of here's how you might make these different in your setting and you can make whatever changes other than this that you want. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we, we go through this and my other big takeaway is, Oh, right. In three Oh and three five, there's a huge sense that 
a plus two to a certain type of skill roll is an interesting feature. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and that's going to continue into fourth. Like that 10% better chance of success is a really super common type of feature. You know, a, a small extra bonus. Well, there's a reason that all got all that got dropped mm-hmm. for advantage on in in fifth. And it's because it just isn't super engaging to have plus two to three different things or whatever. Well, and to be honest, when you have a listing that only has, you know, one paragraph, a few, uh, and then a couple of sentences about how, what part of the racial traits from the PHB you still retain, and then, you know, a bullet pointed list of some other, other items based on the biome here. uh, That's not a lot of room to do that you know what i mean like it's it's really not you know then it it does make it so that the most interesting thing is the plus two and it becomes a math exercise and a number that you write on your character sheet and then you don't there's no real way to unless you're really super into it and you build your background around the reasoning why you have this or why your people have this bonus then it doesn't really come into play other than okay that bonus is part of that equation yeah um looking forward into arctic dwarves i mean their ability score adjustments are a kick in the teeth yeah minus four dexterity <laughs> yeah uh, plus two strength plus two con great minus four dex minus two charisma woof mm-hmm. that is yeah hmm Yeah. Um, and you know, it's interesting that uh, the general Arctic racial trait is just a uh, plus four bonus on fortitude saves to resist the effects of cold weather or exposure. Right. It's not resistance to cold damage. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 That's that's kind of fascinating in in what it doesn't do mm-hmm. uh, because. I'm now very familiar with fifth mm-hmm. where there is a 900% chance that it would be you gain resistance to cold damage. Right. Done. Right. Now, did you, when you were playing 3.5, did you have, um, you know, they did those environment books. So they, like one of them was sandstorm about desert biomes uh, and yeah. And, uh, fro- frostburn, frostburn and storm. storm. Yeah. So yeah. I had those. Um, I even wrote a, I wrote a review on the on the storm uh, on the uh, on the desert one, but I don't remember what. Yeah. The, I, I mean, it's been year, like literally a decade since I did that, so I I don't remember what the um what the racial differences were in that book, and if it was more like I guess what I'm getting at is you know this is sort of here are these biomes, here's how you might fiddle with the bonuses and give a couple of traits to make those that class fit that setting. I'm just wondering how much of that, I, I can't remember if those, those environment books came before or after this, I guess is what I'm saying. Oh, they would have been after this. Um, they might've been in development at sort of similar times, but they were definitely after this. Uh, they came out as I was tapering off of being a buy every book, every single book. Mm-hmm. no, every single book (laughs) 
collector of three five. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I remember thumbing through a lot of those at um, at the bookstore when I was on my break, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then never quite believing that I would use them enough to buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, and just not feeling the, the hook of that content. Yeah. Um, See, as a biologist, I was fascinated by the idea of having this book that supposedly prepares you to run in a biome that is not necessarily, you know, the standard PHP character is not necessarily suited for. So what do you do? Like that, sure. that fascinates me. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, I, I don't. Uh, yeah. Um, I titled my review, the desert that isn't dark sun. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, so uh, just to answer the question, I actually asked frostburn was 2004. Sandstorm, Stormrack were 2005. Sandstorm and Stormrack. Okay. Uh, and then yeah. uh, Cityscape 2006, Dungeonscape 2007. Cityscape I do have. Yeah. So that's the, that's the skinny on that. So yeah, so d- all of them after this UA content. Yeah, and I mean, by 2007... Uh, I was there in at Gen Con in 2007 when they announced, so we're doing a new edition, mm-hmm. <laughs> and here's what's going on. So uh, I had definitely stopped buying by then. Um, I had uh, I'd moved to North Carolina, and I was running a 3.5-based game um, that was really heavily hacked mm-hmm. um, because... That's so I am. Like all, all of the long-term games I've run are uh, ones that replace all of the races aside from hu- humans and really change up a bunch of the magic and such to just be whatever I feel like doing for that one setting. Yeah. Um, so, so right. Um, I don't know that there's going to be a ton more to really dig into for each expression of each race um, throughout the different biomes. Um, like, it's kind of interesting as a cultural thing to talk about how um, jungle elves trade out the the weapons that all elves are proficient in for a different set of weapons. Mm-hmm. Their weapon familiarity, uh, weapon proficiency feature offers um, uh, Handex, rapier, short sword, and short short bow. Um, yeah, uh, as opposed to uh, is it long sword, short sword, uh, short bow, long bow. Right, right. Um, so I mean that that's that's kind of a, a cool thing, um, but in general these are recapitulating a lot of the same stuff. Um, it's cool to have jungle halflings do some different stuff culturally just to like help remind you that they aren't Shire folk. Right. Um, I'm not digging too much into, uh, into any of these, um, 
I, I'm sure I, my eyes glazed over <laughs> at this when I first read the book. I promise they did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so here we are again. You know, it's been 16 years, and uh, it still is a work of fortitude for me to dig into each of these and extract anything from them. Uh, I mean, boy, it takes a, a real beast of a paragraph to explain uh, the jungle goblins uh, climb speed. <laughs> I don't know, man. And like, uh, I love that the jungle half elf, you know, it, its feature is so you have some post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. from the stress of being mixed race in society. Have fun. That That's your thing. You have hypervigilance because you're mixed race. Yeah. Good luck. Really? I mean, it, it's a, uh... So what I was going to say was that you know this this is formatted exactly like I would expect it to be formatted for a, a three point five yep. book, um, but unfortunately, it's uh, look. There's not enough written on any of these races or racial variants to make it interesting enough for me to read, right? To really like want to dig in and read yeah. it. Um, yeah. And the the bonuses and the traits are not, you know, uh, like like you were mentioning, like the the goblin, you know, it's the jungle goblins are territorial, tree dwelling savages with a sadistic streak a mile wide. Their skills at climbing and moving from tree to tree, combined with their cunning and vicious nature, cause even other goblinoids to respect them. Like, okay, well. I mean, Jungle Goblins opens with, if monkeys were evil and could speak. Jungle Orcs opens with, if gorillas were evil and could speak. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Okay. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's, yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. But, so let's let's move on from this section then. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So after that, we get um, Genasi, but... Not different. Yeah, Genasi, but not yeah. <laughs> right. So races of air, earth, uh, fire, uh, water, and then the half races mm-hmm. of of same. Right. Um, Which get if if it's possible even less than what the <laughs> you know what the the ones in the right. Yeah. Get, you know just well, and that's because uh, it's identifying each race with only one element. Mm-hmm. It's not, here's a fire elf, here's a water elf, here's a, an earth elf. Um, and let me tell you, Baskin-Robbins' 31 Flavors of Elves has been a guiding concept in mm-hmm. LARPing in the South <laughs> for most of my career in that field. So nice. I have some sympathy for doing that. I digress. Um but so it identifies uh, gnomes and goblins as you know air connected races, um, kobolds and dwarves as earth connected races. Which, by the way, thank you for remembering that kobolds in you know, mythology are an underground race tied to mining. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> um, 
than uh, elves and hobgoblins as fire races, which is kind of fascinating, but they do, they're actually sort of going somewhere with mm-hmm. that, uh, which is kind of cool. And um, orcs and halflings as water races, which, sure, I guess. It's kind of weird, but sure. Yeah. Um, and so that, like, I, I like this a lot more than I like the, the, the biome variants because this is a section I could hang the whole expression of a setting on. Mm-hmm. Like I could, I could run with this and have a really good time. Um, and you know, they're kind of doing a, uh, each element has a good expression and a bad expression. Well, I don't like that as much because I would like them to both be explicitly good and bad and, mm-hmm. you know, f- fine, yeah. whatever. Um, but I just really like goblins. I'll tell you. Also, my next character concept is an orc. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, th- there's something kind of cool going on here um, in imagining a, a setting that's constrained in that way. Uh, I would definitely revisit this and explore it as the base assumption of a setting. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, man. The next section. Yeah, I break out in hives just reading it. So, <laughs> reducing level adjustments. Yeah. So, all right. If you didn't play uh, 3.0 and 3.5, let me see if I can do this quick. So, if your race had too many features to be you know, on a power level with the the core player's handbook races, mm-hmm. it instead had a, a plus EL uh um, I think that's uh, anyway a, a, a plus level adjustment is the relevant thing here. So a level adjustment was, for example, uh, as a first level character, uh, you you can't take these races. As a second level character, if you start a second level, you could instead be a tiefling who is a first level character because a tiefling is a plus one level adjustment race mm, and so on for all the, the plus one level adjustments like Asimar and all the Genasis and so on. Right. Um, one of the major effects of this is to sharply discourage those using those races sure. because it's not worth it. Right. It's never worth it. Oh my goodness. Is it not <laughs> worth it? Um, because, your your racial features just don't scale with you in a way that keeps them useful into the mid game, but they do make sure that you don't have any survivability in the early game where you are so fragile anyway. Um, so, so yeah, um, this is basically addressing that that issue by creating a mechanic for your level adjustment to taper as you go up. Yeah. Um, which is a, a good idea by itself, right? Um, it still means that you have a survivability problem at the lowest levels. Um, I mean, imagine being a, a plus two level adjustment race. Everyone else is third level and is cruising with 
we'll call it 20 to 25 hit points. Congratulations, you have eight. Yeah. Good game. Yeah. By the way, you hard die at negative 10. Good game. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, that was just a, a like, this is attempting to address a really messy part of, um, of 30335. It is a, Good effort, but doesn't go far enough. In in my you know, considered opinion, of just scanning it again for the first time in you know at least um, at, at least twelve years, yeah. probably more <laughs> like fifteen. Right. Um. Like for for instance, a second level null fighter ECL five who later gains a third class level as a minimum of fifteen thousand XP. Uh, his ECL has just gone from five to six. Well, you're saying he's adventuring with a fifth level party and he's got mm, probably about twenty hit points. Mm-hmm. Rough. Like I don't care what features he has. If it isn't hit points, how did he even get this far? Um, and so yeah, I, I've I've beat this horse enough for now. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, but I, I love that on the surface this trade-off may look like a bad deal. Mm-hmm. Yes, accurate. <laughs> I mean, I you know the I, I the thing is like it's it's only not a well it's still a bad deal either way, but uh, that. That only works if everybody in the party is doing that level-adjusted class thing or level-adjusted race thing, right? right. And if everyone is a plus one level adjustment or has other stuff to balance your plus one level adjustment, no problem. It's right. great. No, no issues. Um, it's just, in theory, you should be fighting stuff that is a CR higher, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, anyway, this is a fine reminder of why this design model uh, did not survive into fourth. Right. Uh, it's also just really clunky and hard to use. It's it's just yeah. Yeah, it's um, like uh, take out your calculus textbook and uh, do these <laughs> right. differential equations, calculate the ECL, and uh, yeah. Mm. And then we get to uh, bloodlines. Right. And, you know, as a birthright fan, I'm heartbroken that this isn't... Uh, so here's how you run birthright in third ed. But birthright.net was here for me all those long, dark years. <laughs> yeah. God bless them. Um, <laughs> but anyway, this is... Um, it, it's a nod to a lot of different, um, you know, I have some monstrous ancestry along with my PC race ancestry. Right. Um, yeah, see, celestial demon, devil, doppelganger, dra- uh, black dragon, well, all, all the Baskin Robbins flavors mm-hmm. of dragons, right. um, doing fine there. Uh, elementals. Sure. Yep. That makes sense. It's another way to be a Genasi. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. <laughs> um, genies. Technically, another way to be a Genasi. Right. right. That's that's the 
Genasi story, mm-hmm. sure. Uh, <laughs> giant, well, like as the guy who wrote in the company of giants, I can definitely respect. Um, I want to be giant blooded. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Yep. Um, Gith. Gith or neck? Yeah. Uh, the Gith as a bloodline hurts my brain. <laughs> yeah. Because no, just play a Gith Yankee. Right. It's fine. Yeah. There'd be nothing wrong with being a like mixed race mixed race githyanki. That's fine, but this this comes across weird to me. I don't know. As a progressive bloodline, it feels weird because it, it feels like you should just have a sub race that is half githyanki. Right. Well, that's that's the thing, right? Like, if if you respect the origin of the gith at all, yeah. it doesn't even make sense. Well, well, right, right. Like splitting Githyanki and Githsurai here is just nonsense. Mm-hmm. There's not a, there's not some kind of genetic distinction. That's not a thing. Right. It's all distinction through training. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just it, it. You just need a a, a half race. Like they're they're just people. Right. They're not, you know, a, a mystically powerful thing like an elemental or a dragon. Uh, they're they're just people. Like, write a half gith yonki, or half half gith if you gotta, but just call it a half gith because let's be real. <laughs> I don't know. It bugs yeah. me. It doesn't. It doesn't fit what I think the the cosmology and, and canon should be there. Um, Which is why it's in this. So anyway, to be honest, but well, sure. Uh, so, so hag, uh, like hagborn, is totally a thing in um, uh, unapproachable east, right? Or you know, spellbound, the the box set from second edition, mm-hmm. um, lycanthrop. Oh, it's shifters. Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. Minotaur. Actually, for minotaur, again, I go to guys. They're just people. Yeah. They're they're really just people. It's not a mystical bloodline. They're just people. Um, ogre, same. Slod, gross, just gross. Um, <laughs> Titan, okay, sure. Troll. <sighs> I mean, I played too much Earth Dawn to not see this as trolls are just people. Yeah, they're they're just like jerks sometimes. Except mm-hmm. they're fine in um, Earth Dawn. Right. Um, vampire. Mm, I guess. I guess we have a name for this. It's called Dampier. Good, <laughs> but we don't we don't name name drop that here for some reason. And then Yuanti again, they're people. Yeah, they're just people. Like unless you're gonna have a bloodline for elf mm-hmm. sitting alongside half elf, then a lot of these don't belong here to me. Right. It's just my take, guys. Um, Anyway, um, there's there, there's then a bunch of uh, tables that, that factor into this and uh, guidelines for making your own uh, new bloodlines and how abilities are distributed with that and so on. And, and all of these have uh, different ways of expressing for minor, intermediate, or major bloodlines. Some of them can only be minor or whatever, but... Um, they give you varying numbers of features 
depending on how much you've sunk into them. Right. Which is fine. But not my favorite section. Um, and racial paragon classes aren't going to be it either, to be honest. Like, I'll go ahead and tell you the very next section. <laughs> um, like, okay, so during during three zero and three five, um, a mm, so Monty Cook went and released his own uh, mm-hmm. yep. game Arcana Unearthed uh, in in three zero, which then became Arcana Evolved mm-hmm. in three five. Um, thanks for that naming scheme, <laughs> Malhavik. Right. Oh my god! But a, a huge thing in those is. Um, all the races having uh, paragon levels, like you are a, a pure expression of uh, a, a giant or a sprite or Feyen or, or whatever the other races mm-hmm. in that are, and that's fine. Um, I I'm, I'm not wild about them. Um, because they're multi-classing, they're really delicate trade-offs and you have to have a high level of system mastery to make good, de- good decisions or just accept that um, your build might, might make no sense. Right. Right. Yep. Um, becoming a, a Paragon giant is a horrible idea for a spellcaster, which is crappy. Mm-hmm. It should be great for them, but it's not. Um, so anyway, um, <laughs> This is doing a lot of the same thing, while also uh, a bit of a backward nod to um, OD&D's uh, races class. Right. Uh, since the Elf Paragon uh, gains uh, spellcasting levels as a wizard for two of its three levels. Mm. Okay. Uh, what I do like about this is the conceptual space of um, you know, maybe I did some additional quests to you know become more elf than elf in, in some magical way. What should I get for that? Well, these are some good ideas for what you should get for that. Right. And so I think that's pretty cool. Um, like uh, elf sight is a neat idea in that sense. Um, the the actual mechanical expression is a little okay, fine. It's a bonus to search and spot, and better range and low light vision, fine. But um, as far as that goes, this is this is pretty cool stuff. Um, then there's uh, half dragon paragon uh, because the game isn't yet calling them dragonborn. Mm-hmm. To me, in a real sense, this is a you know a uh, road marker toward Dragonborn or a core race. Right. And then you get to Orc Paragon. Sure. So it's, it's also interesting to me to see what uh, human Paragon is going to be, since it's one of the guiding principles of D and D that uh, humans can be anything, mm-hmm. and we're not going to tell you even what that means conceptually they just have more choice points to other people right um 
and so that's what that's what it is here, right? Um, human paragon is incredibly powerful because uh, adaptive learning lets you um, get around the out of class skill mm-hmm. thing for one skill. Yeah, my favorite table with all the capital C's and lowercase C's and. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. boy. Um, and then a bonus feat and an ability boost right. and spellcasting for two of its three levels. Yeah, that's real stinking good. Of course it is. And four uh, plus int mod skill points. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, unless you really want to be a, a very pure spellcaster. Uh, and that's absolutely your deal. Like, yeah, you should probably pick this up. I don't see why you wouldn't. Uh, but, um, yeah, like, Orc Paragon getting rid of light sensitivity for you is good, but you shouldn't have had it in the first place, so whatever. <laughs> um, and, yeah, uh, plus two bonus weapon damage, weapon damage against elves. Screw elves, mm-hmm. apparently. I don't. I don't love Paragon races. I, I think that as a few more data points and what they think uh, a refined expression of that race is like, it's interesting. But as something to actually use, no, not for me. Yeah. Once again, it feels like if you were going to make a setting where, um, where each race had this sort of. Um, uber model almost like these are the people that are going to ascend and become immortal like this this is your your achilles right um almost divine parentage here is what you get for being the paragon of your entire race uh you are the embodiment of all of the qualities of your race and they are imbued into you in such an extraordinary fashion that you exude them and you express them with many more bonuses than others of that same race that are not paragons. And I could see that being a pivot point for a setting. If you specifically wanted to make a setting that really used this set of rules here on these three or four pages to try to distinguish the races from each other or to distinguish some sort of, I don't know, ruling council or something. You know what I mean? Like uh, I, I could see sure. that being a thing. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it's, it's, again, I don't find the, I don't find this interesting, right? It's, it's sort of the same. Yeah. I have the same problem with this as I have with the, the Arctic and aquatic and desert uh, species that they talked about earlier. Right. That's just not, Right. It's not all that compelling. I hate to say it. It really just, you know, when you read all of the uh, all the um, the descriptions of what they, it's just like you're you're uh, the human. You're the best human. You're the orc. You're the best yeah. orc. You're the elf. You're the bestest yeah. elf of of ever elves there were. You know. Well, all right. And the the sidebar uh, talks about the prevalence of racial paragons can reflect the importance of racial issues. In campaigns where tensions run high between the civilized races, each race is more likely to have a large number of racial paragons among its Mm -hmm. members. Wait. So this is how white supremacy gets in? No, screw this. This is dumb. This is no. No. Uh, No. You know, it it talks also about... Uh, you know, 
Paragon classes in a setting. It says, for example, in a setting in which elves and dwarves have all but died out, the traditions of the racial Paragon classes might have been lost. However, in the same campaign, humans, half-orcs, and halflings all could thrive, and powerful NPCs of these races might frequently have a level or two of the appropriate Paragon class. Like, uh, that just sort of waters it down, though. <laughs> you know? Well, well right. And, and dealing with... Um, this idea is cool if you are going to rigorously stat uh, all of your NPCs by class and level. Right. Is extremely 3035 thinking. Right, right, right. Yeah. With which we have uh, little to no more truck. Right. Thank you. And we departed from that and happily so. Uh, Right. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, that that pretty much brings us to the end of that chapter. (laughs) Right. And we've already already covered a a decent portion of chapter two, though definitely not all of it. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, so I think we're going to stop there. Um, we we did the introduction. We we talked about sort of the theme of the book and and the background of the book, and then we we covered chapter one. So you know, if you're a frequent listener to the Edition Wars podcast, you know that we've done a pretty good job tonight. <laughs> uh, but I I suspect we have another two episodes of this book, uh, maybe plus. Um, depending, um, and so we're gonna we're gonna take another look at this in our next episode, and it will be covering probably chapter two and three, maybe. Let's let's yeah, hope. Let's, man. let's see if we can let's, let's see if we can do that, and then the and then the and then the next would be four and five, and then well, I guess then there'd have to be another episode after. Yeah, so I would we're gonna get through it at our own pace. We're we're trying to have you know episodes around an hour, maybe an hour and twenty minutes. So uh, you know we might end up with four episodes of this, and I'm okay with that. Um, uh, just want to set your expectations. In fairness, our audience is in quarantine, so they have nowhere to be. That's true. Yes, that's true. And you know, uh, I think people did really enjoy the Edition Wars Christmas special, where we took a deep dive into different books. So uh, that's that's part of the reason why we're doing this is kind of a test run of of doing that format uh, in for different for different edition. Um, so we'll see how that works out. And uh, on that note, I will ask Brandis, uh, where can people find you on the internet? I write for Tribality.com. I uh, blog at BrandisStoddard.com. You can find me on Twitter at BrandisStoddard. And I have a Patreon that is Brandis Stoddard. Excellent. And I am Sam Dillon, and you can find me on the web at rpgmusings.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel. You can find me uh, on the Don't Split the Podcast Network, where I run a streamed game every other week on Sundays, and then it's released as a podcast called D&D Brief. You can also find me on the Tome Show, all over the Tome Show, as that's where you found this particular recording as well. So uh, without further ado, I think we will close out the episode, and thank you for listening, and... And we will talk to you next time.